0: Welcome everybody to the It's a Crazy Life podcast. My name's Sarah and I will be your host. This podcast is dedicated to raising awareness for mental health whilst helping to end the stigma. It is my intention with this podcast to motivate, educate and inspire you on your very own journey to become the best versions of yourself. Welcome back everybody to the It's a Crazy Life podcast and of course welcome to 2022. I am positive we're going to have a better year this year. I can feel it in me waters (laughs) and with a bit of luck we will hopefully see what can only be described as the end to this bloody coronavirus I don't know about you but I am actually sick of hearing about it especially as I am currently isolating after contracting the virus myself and to be honest I am glad I've got it out the way because I have been so bloody scared of this thing it's like my worst fears have been realised and guess what, I'm alive and I'm okay <laughs> I, um, you know, it's not as bad as what I thought that it was going to be. And maybe I have picked up the Omicron uh, variant and it is a lot less, um, you know, stronger than the Alpha and the Delta and the Omega and whatever else. (laughs) So I can finally put it to bed in my head anyway. um, You know, uh, my sympathies goes out to those people who are struggling really badly with the virus. Um, But luckily for me, I've actually been okay. So, how was your Christmas? How was your New Year? I hope you all had a wonderful time. For me, um, it was very much quiet. Um, (laughs) I had a nice meal out with family on Christmas Day and then spent the rest of the time relaxing. And then my New Year was spent locked up. (laughs) So yeah, not the best time, but I have had loads of time to sort of plan some new things and put some stuff together and get on with things that I've had hanging around for weeks now (laughs) but I am getting bored I've got to be honest I'm getting really bored um but yeah I shall continue the isolation and just keep trying to you know research things for you guys and get it out there anyway moving on (laughs) Today I have compiled some of the best bits from season six, the basics, where we covered all things exercise, nutrition, and hydration. And we also added in there some alkaline diet information and also some randomness from the hands of God thrown in <laughs> for good me- measure. So I've picked out some of the most important bits from our guests for you to get, you know, for you to get a quick recap on. Um, I hope you'll enjoy the show. So let's dive in. And I am going to be starting this here um, show with the one and only Jennifer Ball, my very own PT. I just love her strength, and I think she's got such a huge message to share of resilience and um, determination. So I wanted to share with you a little bit of her story now. Why wasn't that your path then? Why? What happened? My career in
1: coaching... Um, for others came when I was really young, uh, as I've just said, in really enjoyed PE at school. Um, I was blessed to have some really inspirational teachers that now I realise have become, are, were idols for me as, as a young child, people who I really looked up to, people who I respected. They talked to me like I was a, an adult, not a teenager, but unfortunately my childhood, and early adulthood was hindered with severe knee injuries, uh, which meant that it wasn't a sensible choice uh, to pursue that as a career. So at 15, I developed Osgood-Schlatter's disease, which is a knee condition that causes consistent pain and swelling below the knee joint. So I would always have a uh, constant pain. It would regularly inflame and my walking would become impaired. So I would walk favoring my left side over my right. And I learned from 15 how to deal with consistent pain. Through my late teens, I still competed in sport. I didn't let it stop me. Uh, I developed what's called Plyka syndrome. Right. Plyka syndrome prevents normal functioning of the knee bending there's a web of like cartilage that basically goes in between the knee joints, which when you bend your knee, you will get a click in. You can feel it hitting a web. And every time you would feel that. Um, And at that point, we started to look into cortisone injections to try and relieve my pain. So I think I remember physically going in for two to three big big injections and we're talking uh while I was kind of recovering from that my orthopedic team created some bespoke knee braces so i've got an, an extremely tiny patella so my kneecap is very small so they needed to create structure to try and straighten it as I was growing up, so I was still growing. So we tried to manipulate it back into place that way. Now these knee braces are very bulky, they're hot, they're heavy, but you know, it I didn't care because it relieved the pain and I could still do what I wanted to do as a child. In my early twenties, uh, I had two keyhole surgeries to remove supernova Wow. The original, the element that created the web that I spoke about was basically a plica, which is a, and these little nodules within the knee, basically you could feel them all the time, so I had keyhole surgery, they would put the camera into the knee There'd be a medical device that had like a a suction saw that would circular vacuum up the horrible bolus of grossness and would remove the plica and then they seal it so that it doesn't hopefully grow back again. Unfortunately, that didn't happen. So I had to have it again twice. And then I had the, the supernova, which was the big one. Right. So once we'd removed the supernova plicers, we really needed to work on my upper body strength. So I was really starting to struggle to walk at this point. I needed to use crutches and a walking stick and the balance of my body w- was wrong. Obviously, I was, a, I was a little bit heavier, so I had to lose a little bit of weight so that there wasn't so much weight on my knee.
0: Amazing. So... I, I just want to go back a little bit. You, you said there about being in uni and having a walking stick, and you would go. So, what was your state of mind going through that?
1: My state of mind at that point was to get my Bachelor of Science. Right. I, I wanted that. I, I always wanted a, a university degree. Again, probably coming from the fact my two sisters did exactly the same. Um, I love and respect both of them massively. And I think. Nothing can stop me if I got through that surgery and came out stronger. So it was more the outcome that would drive me to get to the, the outcome that I wanted.
0: Yeah. And and was there times if throughout that you were thinking, this is never going to happen for me? I'm never going to be able to do this.
1: Yeah, it was years and years and years. You know, I, um, I met my other half in my first year of university and for at least the first three years, I would tell him to leave me. Really? Because he could do better off with someone who was more able-bodied. He could do much. I didn't know if I was going to recover or not. Really? And I had a lovely gentleman. I didn't want to string him along, but that guy stood by me through the hardest time of not just my life. I think it was really hard for my parents. Right. Seeing their youngest kid be disabled and in pain you know I I lived at home at that point and that must have been really hard for them and I can respect that yeah and again I didn't want them to be in pain so I wanted to recover.
0: Right so you've got all these driving forces behind you it's not just that desire to be a PE teacher there was the people who were supporting you as well. 100 percent it's amazing it really is like because you honestly if if anybody met you they'd never know because you are just on it every day you're working out every day you know you're you're trying to improve yourself and I suppose does does that come from there does that come from that determination Yeah. yeah I'd definitely say so
1: it was a massive hurdle to have at 15 yeah you know to to push and want when you want to be part of teams and you want do these extracurricular activities nothing was going to stop me and that's always been my mindset i things can hold me back but i just see it as a hurdle and i can overcome it you can overcome anything for me sat in a chair recovering for over a year it gives you a lot of time to think really and I wasn't going to wallow in my own black pit of hell.
0: Not to forget, Jen also told us this about discipline, something very close to my heart. We've just had a massive upheaval for the last 18 months and I've been with you on this journey. I've watched watched you grow and develop. (laughs) You know, while things are falling apart, Jen's risen to the top. So tell us, how have you managed to stay so focused and driven the whole time?
1: So as you already know, I'm ridiculously disciplined. Yeah, organized. My calendar has blocks and it's all blocked out, okay? You know this, how, how structured I am. If I don't complete a task, I move it to another day and it still gets completed, okay? I don't just, oh, I'm not doing it. My business is my life. I am very blessed that my background is in technology. So the minute I heard about lockdowns, my brain was already ticking. How am I going to be able to facilitate my business in a manner that would keep them active, mainly for a mental health reason, which we'll explore probably later.
0: So let's get down to the old bones of mental health and exercise. Jen, please tell us, in your professional opinion, why is exercise and movement so important for our mental health? Well, first of all, all of your limbs and your brain,
1: first and foremost, if you have two arms, two legs and a brain, you should be grateful. If you can see out of your eyes, if you can hear, if you can use your voice, you should be grateful. I had the loss of my legs for so long and I promised myself that I'd always be blessed to have limbs and that I would use them. Okay, so that's not just, that's that's mental as well. So whenever talk about limbs or muscles, that does include the brain. Um, A lot of people for the last 18 months have obviously been stuck at home, working from home, sitting in probably not good desk structures at all, probably sat on the sofa with the legs up on a table and the laptop on the legs. And you then start to understand why muscles are tightening. The overall understanding of of COVID, is the the stresses of it was insane, Uh, the tension in the upper body that you would just get, you know, was was horrible. And without exercise, that was just going to get worse. Um, As humans, we are made to move, okay? And being restrictive of your own movements will do damage physically and mentally. It plays a huge role in preventing the development of mental health problems and therefore it improves the quality of my own life. The increased self-esteem will lead to feeling of a higher life satisfaction. You have a greater resilience. You have a greater sense of achievement because you did it. Even the small increases in your physical activity will have massive impacts of physical and mental health if maintained. Yeah. It will also enhance your quality of life. So for example, you can do exercise that isn't specific exercise, walking up and down your stairs, taking half a washing load upstairs, coming downstairs, going to take the second one. Those are called NEAT levels. Mm
0: -hmm. NEAT
1: levels are non-exercise activity thermogenesis. So very wordy, but people who fidget a lot will have a high NEAT level because they're constantly moving their limbs. Mm -hmm. Twitching, tapping, high step counts, trying to maintain that movement up and down. Your watch bleeps at you. You've been sat for an hour, move don't just swipe and snooze get (laughs) hell up do something it's not programmed to swipe snooze it's okay that's a wake-up call bang get up and move
0: jen is the perfect example of somebody who will not give up no matter what is thrown at her jen will keep getting up i'm so grateful for jen Um, especially the courage that it took for her to share her story. Um, That was amazing. Moving on, we have the lovely Laura Bryan from Mind Nourishing. And what an awesome show that was. We learned some amazing facts that week. And here is a couple of outtakes for you. Okay, brilliant, and I love what you you were saying there as well. well. I didn't love it, but it's interesting the link what you were saying between the people you were working out in the community with. Yeah, uh, they were eating very beige foods, and you know vegetables only come on a Sunday, which I suppose a lot a lot of families probably do live like yeah. that in this in yeah. this. Thing. And then you were saying the link there with their their severe mental health issues Mm -hmm. so on that this is mainly the reason why I've asked you onto the show today Um, but what is then the link between food and our mood then how does that there's
2: there's so many different ways that foods can affect us and I think we're still learning a lot like nutrition science is really well, this can be quite far behind. It's really difficult to actually learn about nutrition because there's lots of things that can impact how we feel. But I guess like kind of breaking up into some of the few basic things. So first of all, food is obviously our fuel, isn't it? So what we eat is then broken down into our energy and different types of foods can affect our energy levels so for example if our energy our blood sugar levels are imbalanced we might find that we get bursts of energies and then we get quick kind of drops of energy where we might feel hangry or maybe anxious when our blood sugar levels are low so that's kind of one way that our foods initially can affect how we feel Um, but also like Food is—it involves all of these micronutrients that we need for energy that make us feel kind of well enough to be able to go and do other things that we enjoy. So for example, if we're not feeling energetic, we're less likely to want to go for a walk or do that morning yoga. So it really is that initial fuel that can help us to have healthy activities that we enjoy that can boost our mood. But I guess the, the thing that... I particularly became interested in and the stuff that kind of blows my mind really is about actually what we're learning about the bacteria in our gut and how that can impact our mood. And we've been learning quite a lot about uh, the different um, kind of neurotransmitters that our gut bacteria can create. So, 90% of serotonin, our happy hormone, is actually created in the gut. And I think the more that we learn about things like dopamine, our reward hormone that's created by bacteria in the gut, and GABA, our kind of relaxation hormone, I think it becomes harder to ignore that link between how our food feeds our bacteria, and then our bacteria give us our energy, our kind of feel good hormones, and so many other things that they help to control. So, there is a huge link. We don't fully understand it, but it's a very exciting kind of area to be in. I think I think it's so
0: mad how it's the bacteria oh that gives. I know the, the yeah. chemicals to feel good.
2: <laughs> you just
0: wouldn't imagine that, would you?
2: <laughs> I know, and what I remember like learning about the kind of extent of bacteria and there's like trillions of different bacteria and there are more bacteria cells in our body than human cells so do you know when I'm just like oh my goodness like am I being controlled by these (laughs) bugs in my gut but to some extent we are because yes we we work in harmony and we 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 kind of give each other what we need but for example, our gut bacteria can really influence our cravings. They can influence like our behaviours. So it's it is incredible, really, what they can do. But um and but it's amazing that we can almost modify that environment through
0: the food that we eat. Wow. So I wonder then what sort of like you just said there, that it, it the, the bacteria can affect our behaviours. I wonder what the link is then behind sort of like stress anxiety and depression behavior like what what is it, it that triggers that I, I like you so, say, go on sorry
2: yeah yeah so we know that generally people who suffer from depression tend to have a less diverse gut bacteria yeah. and they'll kind of be lower in some of the um the kind of beneficial bacteria that are normally ideally quite high. So things like lactobacillus, bifidobacteria. So on the other side of the scale, we know that the people who live the longest, happiest lives have the most diverse bacteria. So there is something in the amount of variety that that kind of impacts um, our mood. The thing is though, we don't really know kind of what came first, whether it's that the individual has a less diverse gap, the gut bacteria, which affects their mood because maybe they're not creating some of these feel good hormones, or it's that the kind of depression means that maybe that individual's eating behaviors have changed. They may be going out in nature less, which can affect our gut bacteria. Or it could be a range of both. So it's really kind of, we don't really know why there is a difference and what came first, but we know that there is some kind of link between gut
0: bacteria and mood. i I just what you just said there about nature. So getting out in nature affects the bacteria in your gut as well. Yeah,
2: so this, I guess, and this becomes more prevalent, I guess, when we are living in a time where we're trying to be particularly clean we've got and obviously it's for a good reason hand sanitizers and things like that and there's kind of been like generations of children who aren't really going out and playing or rolling around in dirt and eating dirt and having mud sandwiches whatever it is and actually we know kind of throughout our lives we can we get bacteria from the air we breathe from the food we eat from physical contact Um, but there are types of bacteria that are found in nature um, that have an amazing benefit on our well-being but it's we're kind of becoming less um, exposed to these types of bacteria because we're not going out in nature as much um, which is why it's kind of obviously nature has a variety of different like health benefits away from bacteria but that potentially could be another benefit of supporting our diversity is kind of getting out there and not being afraid to get a bit muddy and and it's fine it's um, and the same thing as well kind of on this note it's been found that children with pets so kids who are like around dogs and things like that actually tend to have a a more diverse gut bacteria because they're exposed to the bacteria from the dog but that's a really positive
0: thing Oh my goodness. So in this instance then, what should we be eating and what should we avoid? So
2: if we think about, I always like I don't always think because it's pretty sad, but what we <laughs> I tend to try and think is that whenever I'm eating, that I'm I'm also feeding my gut bacteria as well. Like it's almost like your, your little pets that you take around with you, they're with you literally 24-7. So bacteria's favorite food and the food that it's going to thrive on the most and you're going to get the most um, beneficial bacteria is fiber. So these are things like obviously fruit and vegetables, whole grains, nuts, seeds, legumes. Um, They're generally pretty cheap foods. They're foods that hopefully kind of make up um, people's diets. But in general, we know in the UK, we're not particularly good at eating enough fibre, so it's recommended that we have about thirty grams of fibre every day. But on average, I think um, in the UK population, we only have about nineteen grams. And and to be honest, a lot of my clients are generally lower than that because it can it can be quite hard. Um, but the reason is that the fiber we don't really use as humans it goes to our colon and our bacteria just love it and they'll kind of um, digest it and then they'll create kind of short-chain fatty acids that really support our gut environment so fiber-rich foods are something that are really really important Um, and I think something else to mention with that is that quite often we can get stuck in eating the same things. So you might just like, right, I'll have my fruit. I'll always have an apple and an orange. And like, we're we're, we're creatures of habit. So it's really easy to eat the same things. Um, But what we know with gut bacteria is that different types of bacteria eat different types of fiber. So we need to ideally be eating different foods to feed our different types of bacteria. Because if we go back to what we were talking about earlier, the healthiest, happiest people who live the longest have the most diverse gut bacteria. You need to have a diverse diet to get that diversity. So that's probably what the the main thing that I recommend people add in fibre. And I guess in terms of what people should avoid, I always kind of like to come on this one with a little bit of tentativeness because I know for me and I know from people that I work with if I say Sarah you can no longer have any sugary foods like (laughs) what is literally the first thing that you want you want to just go and grab a chocolate bar like and I like this is something that I've tried to do before I've tried to be like right I'm quitting sugar like halo on this is what I'm (laughs) going this is me now no sugar and it it doesn't last. And I end up like craving it, it's all I can think about. And then I tend to then overeat on the chocolate or whatever it is. So I never really like to encourage people to actively avoid anything. But I guess if we if we want to learn a little bit more about the impact of certain foods, what we do know is that if we if we tend to have a diet that is quite high in sugar, what that means is that sugar is So fiber is the kind of fuel for our beneficial bacteria and sugar sometimes can be the fuel for our less helpful bacteria. So it's not to say that we can't have any sugar because that's unrealistic. We all love sugar. It's like part of celebrating our birthdays. It's part of going out for drinks with our friends like it would be a sad place without sugar. But if we know that that can really fuel the less helpful bacteria that might promote things like bloating or like issues with our gut, maybe slight issues with IBS, it at least helps us to feel informed that maybe we can try and add more of these colourful, fibre-rich foods. And maybe, yes, still eat sugar, but maybe see if there's anything else we can swap in instead that will still satisfy us. Um, so I think they're probably the main two things, as well as kind of making sure we're hydrated so that we can remove foods and things like that. But um, but yeah, they're, I, I guess they're the two top things that I can recommend in terms of
0: supporting that gut bacteria. So now let's move on to the hydration and that's getting you a yep. good old two litres of water a day or there or thereabouts. So please kind of say, Laura, um, what is the importance of us being um, well hydrated? What can this do to our mental health specifically? So I guess in term, if we're thinking about, first of all, our brain, so
2: we know that our brain is around about kind of 70% water. So what happens is, is that when we're dehydrated, it can mean that it can really impact our focus, how alert we are. It can make us feel lethargic, and like I don't know about you, but if if I feel lethargic and tired, I'm not feeling I'm not feeling top form. Like my mental health and my mental well being is like it is not optimal. So, I guess in terms of our brain, obviously de- dehydration can also impact like. Um, headaches and those kind of things which can also impact your mood but I guess kind of coming back to our gut as well we as a population and I guess a lot of people that I work with Are actually quite constipated and like apologies but I talk about poo a lot in my (laughs) profession especially when I'm talking about gut health but a lot of people are constipated and one of the reasons is is that they're not drinking enough water or maybe they're not having enough fiber or maybe they're not having enough fiber and enough water so what happens is if we're not going to the toilet every day it means that obviously our food is kind of or our stools are kind of hanging around for a little bit longer than we want it gives opportunity for the less helpful bacteria to start to thrive and it also means that what happens is is that we can start to actually reabsorb some of the hormones or the toxins that we've been trying to get out through our stool so if we're not drinking enough it can really mean that it has and we're not getting rid of these Uh, products or the kind of waste products that we want to daily we can reabsorb them and it can have an impact on our hormones and obviously then on our mood because it means that if our gut bacteria is imbalanced again we've learned how that can affect our mood so hydration is is a lot more than just how our brain feels it's it's so important for our overall body like obviously our blood is mostly water so it, it's so important for so many different functions
0: um, I'm, I'm really shocked at what you just said like uh, you're saying yeah. that there's stores and the food that are hanging around we can then reabsorb the hormones yeah. and then there so sorry we're going to turn this into a poo episode but <laughs> what does that mean <laughs> yeah so so what
2: we tend to find it in female in females a lot of us tend to be have slightly more oestrogen than is than we would have hoped and this is because there's potential lots of um environmental estrogens through things like plastics and things like that but also if we are constipated and we're reabsorbing some of the estrogens that we're trying to get rid of it just means that our body is kind of we're constantly Um, have higher levels of, of some of these hormones which can impact
0: things like PMS so we then heard from the amazing Sarah Keats Andrews all about our menstrual cycle and how that can have an effect on our mental health here's what Sarah had to say so let's let's dive into it, then, because you spoke a little bit about cycles and stuff like that. So people might be thinking, what are they talking about with springs and autumns and stuff? So Sarah, tell us, how can our menstrual cycle affect our mental health on a day to day basis? As I have personally used your tracking tool and I must say, it's crazy how women ever and flow. And it really did help me to understand myself. So please do explain to the listeners.
3: Yeah, I think when it comes to um, you know, with our, with our mental health, you know, there is a relationship with with hormones and anxiety and depression. Um, and they also label irritability there, which I think is is fair to say. Um, you know, every woman is different. Um, you know, menstrual cycle-related symptoms, they are quite often because of individual differences in sensitivity to oestrogen and progesterone. So It's not necessarily that there's abnormal levels of these hormones, but we're all different to how we respond to them. So we're all different in sensitivity. So um, for many women, the pre-menstrual phase so what we would probably class as our inner autumn um you know the few days or even the the week before before our period you know it it is associated with psychological distress you oh. know so again um you know anxiety depression irritability. Um, and this is something, you know, a lot of research has gone into, you know, talking about PMS and it, it tends to be the typical, you know, you, you think that these women know that they're going to feel anxious and down during this this time. But again, once their period arrives, they begin to feel better again, you know, um, or they're starting to question all their life's choices or question everything. And then they come on the next day and they're going, oh, OK, now it makes sense because... Yeah. They, they know that's normal for them, um, you know, and then obviously the cycle cycle goes again. For other women, though, um, the premenstrual phase, so again that that time before our our period, um, is actually where some women experience their lowest levels of psychological distress, um, and instead they experience this mid-cycle um, symptoms of anxiety and depression and irritability. So this is the time, you know, it's it's after their period. And they're experiencing these the symptoms. So, um, this, there was actually some research done in, in, in 2011 that says that 13% of women actually experience this pattern. So, after their period, they're getting angry and anxious and irritable um, and depressed. Um, and again, it's the, the, the middle of the cycle, it's not before their period, which is, is what we normally see um and uh this for me this is where I fall into and and you know I would I can never understand why I felt this way because we know that you know we, we know the term PMS every woman knows the term PMS that just before her period she's going to get angry and irritable and you know she can get anxious and and, and a bit down and um, for me that wasn't the case that's actually when I feel my best and actually after my period's finished that's when I start feeling anxious and depressed and down and um, and I couldn't understand this. So what the hell was wrong with me? Um, thankfully this piece of research that I came across said actually some women do experience this, this increase in, in, you know, um, issues with our mental health after a period and, and at different points. So, yeah, so uh, thankfully there is research to identify this. And, um, obviously there is a group, also a group of women that have no, uh, no cyclical change if you like in in psychological symptoms lucky (laughs) who are they where are they (laughs) yeah Um, there are some of them I don't not to say that they don't have these issues but it's not it's not cyclical um so what you know what I'm talking about with PMS is that it's cyclical that you you tend to get it each and every single cycle um and the same with you know mid-cycle symptoms they get them each and every cycle so for me my day sort of seven and eight Um, you know so after I finish my period that's when I start to feel I can feel the anxiety building Um, and it's it's horrendous it's it's you know my body's starting to crawl I'm starting to question everything and and I'm overthinking and all the rest of it and um, now I know it's because my estrogen's building and I'm I'm sensitive to estrogen and um, you know it's not that my life is falling apart and it's not that I'm a failure and it's not that you know anything outside of me it's that my hormones are changing and that I need to um you know I need to flow with it a little bit more um you know and and you know yourself when you know when you when you get anxious and stuff then the the self-care things like um keeping away from caffeine is not you know is is that time of the month, that time for me is when I need to keep away from caffeine um and and make sure i sleep well and look after myself and and exercise and that's a that's a priority for me at that time of my cycle so um yeah we're all different we're all different in sensitivities to to the hormones and you need to figure out your own sensitivity and when it happens and and if it is cyclical so this, I just wanted to
0: give you this again so that you know you cannot write yourself off as being completely Barbie. <laughs> it might just be a menstrual cycle. Sarah also shared this. Oh my goodness. So in that case, then, right? How do we track our cycles? Like and, and what are the benefits to tracking the cycle?
3: Oh, okay. So with regards to the benefits, yeah. um, so many, so many benefits. <laughs> um so again there are four four phases of the menstrual cycle so we've got menstruation which is the bleeding phase or our inner winter and we've got the follicular phase which is the first half of our menstrual cycle and this is again is where estrogen dominates and this is what we can refer to as our um, inner spring and we've got ovulation where our hormones peak um, and that's our inner what we can call our inner summer and then the luteal phase which is the second half of our cycle and our inner inner autumn so um this is the part where progesterone again dominates and um, but again we also have a little bit of eastern thrown in there too um and just knowing where we are can help you know obviously again in in, in so many ways so with regards to say uh working career or setting goals so one of the things that we can do is to um for me i it was figuring out when i when i become distracted um which tends for me tends to be in the first half of our cycle of my cycle so again when is building again it's like that caffeine effect and i can become really really distracted and and we have um receptors all over our body you know including our our areas and and this can affect our hearing so my hearing becomes better which is brilliant But the world becomes too noisy for me and this can distract me. So, you know, if I'm trying to focus and concentrate and the world's really noisy because my hearing's more sensitive, um, then this can can actually have a massive effect on on what I'm trying to focus on. And I think there's something wrong and oh, my God, and all the rest of it. I think at that time as well, um, you know, Eastern. Eastern is a hormone that wants us out looking for a mate at the end of the day. That's that's what it comes down to, biology-wise, looking for a mate. You know, we're, we're going to be ovulating soon, so um, this is when we should be looking for a mate and getting ready. Sometimes we can feel a bit angsty and get a bit bored because our body wants us wants us out. Um, so, again, if we can know this is going to happen and we can create tools around those times to help stay focused, um, or we can choose to leave boring tasks to a, to a probably the second half of a cycle, which is probably more suited for editing and organizing and, and staying focused on stuff. Um, so, yeah, it's more about matching the tasks and, and workload to suit the phases that we're in um and it can just improve our our focus and productivity i guess another benefit of our own cycle again like you said so it comes down to, to to relationships and um you know if we can understand our ourselves you know if we can if we can understand and then communicate our thoughts and our feelings and needs and desires you know with our partners and um you know, again, like I said, our sexual desires and needs change throughout the cycle, and and this can have an impact on our our relationship. So, if we can understand what's happening, and if we can talk to our partners about this, then we can predict, you know, and, and plan which days are best for date nights and busy social events and cuddles on the sofa or just being alone. And I think it helps us avoid these hormonal arguments and fights during the tough days. <laughs> Um, you know because we know what the hell is happening and we know what we can do to support this and um, yeah so that's that's another another benefit that we can we can get from this so um, there's loads of benefits so many benefits to, oh, to go through um, and yeah I think he, each woman would uh, work out their own of how it's how it's benefited them but I think the, probably the main one is just knowing we're not crazy <laughs> yes
0: yeah, definitely, definitely. It's it's so honestly, it's mind-blowing for me. <laughs> and some more information from Sarah Keats. I think this is so important, especially for the ladies and for you guys. In that case, then, what should we do if we are one of those ladies, because you know some people do get it a lot harder than others, but have a really hard time and you get really bad PMS, what would be the best thing to do?
3: Okay, so I would say um, the first thing is that if a woman's PMS symptoms are affecting her life severely, um, you know, it's affecting her work and her her career, her relationships, and, and, you know, she's really struggling, um, then I would suggest seeking uh, professional help, to be honest. So, um, some women, um, so we know what PMS is, but some women experience uh, what's called premenstrual dysphoric disorder, so PMDD, and this is a more severe form of PMS. And um, so again, those those feelings, think of PMS, but just <laughs> a thousand times more, um, and it will, you know, it does affect our 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 life and our, our relationships, and and we struggle with everything. So. Um, if this is the case, then this really needs to, to seek professional help. You know, as women, we just think we're women and we just need to get on with it. And we're due on and that's it. I and mean, it, It's fine. But if it's affecting our life severely, it it can be helped. It can be helped. So um, so, again, that would be the first thing I think if a woman is experiencing uh, maybe disabling pain. So this is another one. You know, we obviously we get pains with physical symptoms with with pms um then i would say that they need to again seek professional help so if it's disabling pain um you know this could indicate sort of a deeper issue such as endometriosis and um you know like the endometriosis foundation actually says killer cramps are not normal so this is something that we you know if if a woman's stuck in bed for a few days and really cannot move and it's it's you know they have to call in 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 sick to work or school or wherever it is this needs addressing and that's not normal we don't need to just live with it and there are you know there is there is help out there so um that would be the the first thing um I think for those women uh, for those of us that have a hard time but can still get on with our lives, you know, um, I would say that probably the biggest thing is to release our own expectations. Um, you know, we're always doing and pushing and striving and and day in and day out. And and um, I think it's appreciating that you know, just as as we are, uh, just as in nature, you know, there are times to push and and. Uh, there are times to, to rest and recuperate and, and but these days many of us are pushing harder and harder all the time and um, you know there is an ebb and flow to life and you know rhythms are in everything that we do um so we we need to accept that we don't always need to be switched on and if we are experiencing PMS then Maybe it's our body's way of letting us know that we need to take a step back and, and maybe rest and restore and look after ourselves a little bit more. So um, think about ourselves rather than everybody else like we usually do. So, um, yeah, that would be probably my advice.
0: Yeah, <laughs> that's that's great. I had I had the same kind of situation just lately. I was having two periods a month. I was in excruciated pain and it was really sort of heavy, so I had to go to the doctors to be checked for anemia and stuff like that, now I've got to go for a scan, but I thought for years, because I had the implant, because of my heavy periods, I just thought that that was just the way that I was, and I had to, you know, live with it, Um, but I'm now worrying that it could be something more that I haven't looked into, so yeah, getting medical advice is, you know, really important in these situations, because like you just said, these cramps and these pains are not normal and especially not to lose two lots of blood in a month is is not normal so if anybody is you know suffering with that please do go and get medical help thank you for that sarah brilliant oh my goodness so sarah is there anything you could share with us today that maybe we didn't know about our monthly cycle because the more i'm listening the more i'm just amazed at the female human body
3: yeah, so I think the probably the one thing I want women to know is, um, and that many women don't know, is that you know if you're in your maybe late thirties, early forties, um, and you start to, to notice some some changes in your you know in your periods or your menstrual cycle symptoms or things are just feeling different you know whether again whether it's maybe mood swings or anxiety and uh, maybe sleep disturbances or fatigue, hot um, flushes, uh, you know. just the feeling that things are different things are changing um then this could be sort of the transition into into perimenopause you know it's um lara bryden actually says that perimenopause is not about aging so you know this does can happen as early as sort of 30s and 40s and we start to panic and think oh my god we're getting really old and it's not the case Um, so um perimenopause happens alongside aging but it's not caused by aging um you know and, and many people get perimenopause and menopause confused you know um you know when i think back to what i used to think menopause was and oh my god that's miles and miles away but perimenopause is the time before menopause so menopause is when our periods have stopped completely for 12 months and perimenopause is a sequence of hormonal events and changes that lead up to, to menopause. So um, if you think of perimenopause as being a bit like puberty, but in reverse, and this is why, again, this is why we need to track our cycle because if we're not, then it's easy to miss some of these initially, you know, sort of changes that take place. Um, and sometimes we think there's something wrong with us and it could be a normal part of the, the perimenopause process. Um, it could be something a little bit more serious, but unless you're tracking, you're not going to know um, if it's cyclical and it's happening and, and you can, um, I think, again, if you're tracking as well, if it is something more serious or if you're not sure, you've got evidence to take to your doctor to say, look, this is what is happening, you know, and, and um, I need some help, um, you know, and without that, then you've got, it's hard to explain what's going on. So that's what I'd say.
0: a <laughs> benefit to tracking the cycle. Oh, my goodness. At- because I've never heard of
3: peri, peri, what was what it again? Sorry? Perimenopause.
0: Perimenopause. I've never even heard
3: of it. Yeah. What? So per, peri being before menopause. Um, so it can happen. Um, so there's lots of different. Um, so your menopause tends to be sort of your late late 50s, um, early 60s. You know, your, your periods have stopped and, you, and you're done. You've, you're not ovulating anymore. Perimenopause is the transition before that. And it can happen for like, years it can be a long process you know you've got to think the puberty is a long process isn't it you know it's, it's we have this transition that goes the other way so um yeah it's and if we're not tracking it and you know for me this was um again I was doing it from a very selfish point of view knowing learning about this because I was noticing changes and I wanted to know is this normal for me and um and actually it is normal for me it doesn't mean that I need to um just sit back and age gracefully or whatever it is but um you know there are stuff that i need to you know i can put in place to help along the way um and yeah just understand that we some of these changes are normal so
0: you're making me wonder now if the changes that i'm experiencing this last year is because i'm getting there and then following on from what sarah had to say we had the master chris davies explaining to us all about an alkaline diet here's what chris had to say all right, then. So so you just mentioned that cancer lives in an acidic environment and, and, and whatnot. But how then does an alkaline diet benefit us as a whole, like emotionally, um, physically, all the rest of it?
4: Well, our body's trying to stay in an alkaline state. Obviously, our body's after homeostasis, trying to have systems running evenly. And there's always a balance between you know we use acids in the body, our skin is acidic, it's 5.5 to 4.5, so alkalines, of acidic. So it's we've got acids running throughout the body naturally, and obviously our stomach's full of acids, um, which we have to counter with alkalines. But we want generally want to be in a neutral to alkaline state. That's where we want to live, and this that's our natural environment. Most diseases, and certainly some of the bacteria, like even you take things like acne bacteria, it doesn't want a carbon. It wants carbon dioxide. Uh, bacteria, it doesn't want an oxygenated system. So you can only get any bacteria if the skin pore gets blocked, so oxygen cannot get in. It then can live. Otherwise, the oxygen kills off the bacteria. You put in there. You're not directly enough of the oxygen. It's just the fact that it's in a state where it can't survive and it dies. So, and this is what you've got to change your mind to understanding that you need your body in a good state where disease cannot exist. So if you, with the bacteria, once that blocks off, you get, a, you know, carbon dioxide in there building up and you get an acidic area and it gets very red and inflamed. You can see how acidic it is because so the heat there is really coming out of it. So, um, you know, that's only a small real idea of one bacteria, but that's in the body, it's duplicated time and time again and generally we would find that in an alkaline environment things that are you know good for us bacteria that's good for us survive and thrive in those environments especially in the gut you know a lot of the good what we would call the good bacteria in the gut survive because there's good oxygen there there's good um so sort of alkaline foods going through that area where it comes down to acidic foods and other things you find that you get more of the sugar bacteria you get more those bacteria that really are negative to the body are not having a great effect on the body and just living off of you as a host, but not really offering any. Uh, symbiotic relationship of of helping you out um, they're the ones that really sort of you want to avoid if you can because they put an overhead on the body and of course they, they bring out their own toxins as well when they process things and those toxins sometimes are worse than the actual bacteria or the issues there so sometimes the disease isn't the one that's the problem it's the actual toxins from the disease that can overwhelm the body even more so So that's our fault
0: because it's what we're putting into our bodies to create this environment
4: Yep <laughs> everything in your life is your fault to some extent you know and, and when I say some extent I mean pretty much all the time um, so there, there's very few exceptions to that rule really um so yeah you have to look at the external circumstances you know and really those when you look at them some of them could be like pathogens and things which just obviously cause disease but generally the ones that you're in control of fall into lifestyle Stress, of course, which can be a big one that can have problems. Emotional issues, which are a bit different than general stress. They can be a bit more specific and more personal to you. Um, And then really diet will be one of the key ones you'd have to look at um, as well. And certainly you look at the modern sort of diseases that we have. The majority of those can be removed from being an alkaline diet.
0: Right. In that case, then, what makes food acidic or alkaline?
4: Okay. Well, it's, it's really the interaction. It's not the food itself. It's the interaction with the food and the processing of it that makes it. So it's a bit counterintuitive, but um, when you process food, it could be an acidic or alkaline food, it will have a change in reaction and change of the outcome of the food. So for instance, if you have lemon juice, we know it's acidic and it's not you know everyone you know it's not a hard one to guess what it is and that maybe then you go well I shouldn't perhaps have that because it's acidic and if I have lots of lemon juice it's going to cause problems in my diet but actually during the processing um of a reaction to the body we get an alkaline reaction okay with the body so actually What we look at, the lemon juice reaction in the end is actually an alkaline, is beneficial and actually takes temperature down in the body, moves heat out of the body that you get with acidic reactions, it calms the body and you put yourself in a more alkaline state with lemon juice. So, unfortunately, there's no sort of um you, you have to look at these sort of reactions with food as opposed to sort of guessing, looking at food and guessing, well, I think that's an acidic food, so it's going to be acidic in me. It doesn't quite work like that. So, it's these reactions. Um, there's a scientist called uh, Prahl who wrote the Prahl values, who went through all the foods and looked at these. And funny enough, they, they match the Chinese foods from 2000 years ago. So, the Chinese have this idea that all foods fall into five categories it's either a hot food, or it's slightly less hot so it's warming um, or you're neutral or you're cooling or you have a cold food and if you have certain foods it will you know add a, it will change the temperature internally on the body so if someone's very hot they should be eating more cold foods and i don't mean temperature um so not not the temperature we're looking at but the actual reaction that we get is an alkaline reaction and really this is where child medicine gets a little bit mixed up when when they use old language like yin and yin yang the sort of opposites that's what you're really perhaps referring to in diet is you're referring to acidic or alkaline acidic describes all the things that chinese medicine as yang describes and alkaline describes all the things that yin would describe so it's this language problem but the chinese worked out that some foods are more yin so they're very cold or cooling and other foods are more yang so they're more warming or hot so they'll add a lot of temperature into the body or it could be neutral you've got a middle road and they look at the diet as a whole, and look at these reactions. And these reactions that the Chinese medicine mapped out match the prior scientific values of how foods relate and change. So it, they've almost proven that that well, they have proven that system now overlaps. And so you know, if you look at your diet and you look at how the diet affects you, you can get yourself into a more alkaline state by eating the correct balance of foods that keeps you to a neutral maybe slightly alkaline area without being too much alkaline because that can be a problem as well then you know you should be more healthy and eat, and you're not putting yourself into the, causing an area where disease can come out and develop
0: right that's that's blowing my mind a little bit so what would happen then if we had too much mm-hmm. of an alkaline diet
4: um well your body again wants homeostasis it's trying to stay neutral perhaps slightly alkaline um so you know anything any extreme is too much and if too much cold in the body if you think it alters temperature is going to actually slow things down as well you know if you think of where you've got water flowing but if you start freezing it or go towards snow it doesn't move at all then does it? so you you know you, you want the temperatures in the body to work because you know we're we very exact temperature you know we we can deal with some intolerances, and our body's quite good at cooling us if we're too hot and quite good at warming us up if we need to, you know, if we're too cold. Um, but really, food is a key thing of that. So if you look at diets generally, um, you know, you look in England, in the uh, obviously in the winter, if you're working outside, it's very damp, very cold, very invasive by the elements into the system, which is one of the reasons we have baths. You know, everyone says, Oh, well, you don't have bass, so you're lying in your in sort of dirty water and whatever else, and you have a shower. But if you've been out in the cold, especially when working outside, you know, and it's freezing cold, it's wet, it's damp, and you're doing that every day through the winter months, you need bass to get that heat in, to force that cold out of the system, protect you. And that's why we tend to have them where in Europe they don't. Um, and the same thing with foods. We have very sugary foods, so we have sort of when i say very sugary i don't mean the modern diet sense but if you look at vegetables we have winter vegetables you know carrots parsnips things that have quite a lot of sugars in because that extra sugar hits the liver adds a lot of heat warms us up internally and provides us warmth in the cold winter months but when we come to summer we change straight over then away from those things and we're you know more salads and other foods so it's a much lighter diet and it's much more Alkaline in that way. We're always trying to get balance, um, but I think long-term, long-term habits force you into very limited diet. Even with people that say, "Oh, I'm on a healthy diet." Healthy means limited. You know, it means you've you've taken some things out. You think are bad for you, but by doing so, if you don't change your diet, you've just reduced it. You've got to then add things in as well. And people one one of the markers for longevity is having the most gut flow you can. You know, people with a massive range of gut flora tend to live much, much longer. So you want to be in all sorts, a whole wide range of foods as possible so that your body can get what it needs and it's imbalanced. And I think if you want just alkaline foods, you are, you know, if you go eating, you know, colder foods, like imagine having salads and cucumber and foods that are generally quite cooling. And not even they've not even been cooked, so there's no temperature in them either. And you have those in freezing cold winter, you wouldn't feel very satisfied. If you're a bit cold, you probably want some warmth. So it's going to put you in a state where perhaps you your body becomes too cold. You perhaps catch then disease because your body's weakened. Your body has an overhead; it has to heat itself up and much more. Has to heat the food up you're digesting. You know, celery, for instance, is a it's a negative calorie food. It actually takes more to eat it than it than the calories in it. So, you know, some people eat it and try and snack on it. If you're a model, you try and snack on celery because you know you're losing weight while you're eating it and it's, it essentially fills you up. It's, it's full of fiber. So um, it's, it's very hard to break down. And because it's very cooling, your body has to warm it up, the water in it, before it can digest it properly. That takes a lot of energy. So you actually negative energy. If you're doing that in the winter and working hard, you probably not survive. You know, you, you can't have negative energy foods that could take you more to digest them and heat them up and use them, and every day be working hard. So an alkaline, you know, if it's too alkaline, especially if you're you look at your external circumstances where you're living at the time and the, the seasons, that you need to take that into account. Having salads in the freezing cold winter, especially being working outside, that's not a good solution. You need to bounce and counter that out because you're already in negative, you know, in a negative state so everything's in balance isn't it you know you can have anything you want in balance you know you can have you know <laughs> poison in balance yeah. a very small amount you know <laughs> and you can build up your defences to certain things but you know, I think a very alkaline diet, if you're going too far and too exceptional, especially when you've got external circumstances, can cause you problems just like acidic ones can. And it's about, I think we generally live in a neutral slash alkaline environment, but it shouldn't be a long way out. I think we can go quite a way out without being a problem because that's where we naturally perform best. But I think there are downsides to doing anything of an extreme.
0: Wow, it's quite mad, isn't it? Because you you naturally, well, I I personally, I naturally crave like, like you know stews and 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 dinners in the winter. Whereas in the summer, you you wouldn't think about eating a stew, would you? Because you'd just be like, yeah, it's too hot, so you want a salad. It's too hot. Yes.
4: Yeah, and this is all around the world. If you look at red wine, it's very warming. It adds heat because it's a bit of a stronger alcohol, so it's much it's usually a bit strong A couple of but, uh, essentially stronger than white wine. It's got tannins in there and uh, slightly toxic to the body, so the liver has to work with those. And there's some real benefits from red wine as well on the antioxidants uh, side to help out, but it adds heat into the system. Where white wine, you usually put it in the fridge so you have it cold, so there's already temperature cooling. When you drink that, you know, it, it cools the body down. And so although you know the um, alcohol is going to add some heat because the liver going to have to process it, you've almost countered that heat by having it cold, which is more of the summer. You don't want to add heat in the summer. And if it's really cold, you might get your red wine. You might put some other things in it, it might, and you might heat up that red wine and make mulled wine. So yes. if it's really freezing cold, people say red wine's not enough, I want to supercharge with red wine, where well, you put all sorts of bits in it to make it into a mulled wine, and you, you heat it up, so it's a you know, really hot drink as well. So you get in the heat and the heat, because you need double heat wherever you are. So you, know, you get mulled wine coming out. So you can see this all around the world. You start looking at foods. You know In India, in the, the very hot summers there, they'll have a lot of salt in the diet, because salt causes water retention. And so if, you're, if you've got a lot of water in you, you can't really heat you up. You know, if you think the sea, it's not really, you know, if you ever go swimming in the sea, it's not really warm. It's always really warm. In the Maldives, maybe, where it's 30 degrees all year round. But if you've got the weather changing regularly, they say, oh, it's, it's, it's summertime, the sea will be warm. You mean it's gone up half a degree over the year. That's what's happened. It's still freezing cold, you know. <laughs> um, so it's it's like, well... You know, it takes a long time to heat that water up, and it doesn't. It takes a lot of energy for that. And the same thing with a body. If you've got a lot of water, although you're in a hot country, the heat. It doesn't quite come through and heat you up as well so it means that you can stay nice and cool and have a lot of salt in the diet that will balance your water content and water retention so in all the countries you look around there are certain foods that change during the seasons um or there are certain foods for that country that actually are much better for you in that environment and if you do you know move countries or you go abroad you should especially for long periods of time maybe you go somewhere to work for six months or you go traveling you should try and take the local foods on because they will help you with the environment that you're in, so, you know. Yeah,
0: don't, don't just eat McDonald's when, you, <laughs> when you're you're No, past.
4: McDonald's in every country, that's not going to help you, unfortunately. <laughs> so...
0: More information from the master himself. He, to me, he's just infectious, so I thought I'd share this with you also. Um, but on the subject of emotions, because you just mentioned stress and whatnot, Please tell us, if you can, or or groups or whatever, which are the best foods to eat if we're struggling emotionally? So are there certain foods that can improve our mood?
4: Yeah, I mean, I think people reach for comfort foods, don't they, when they're stressed, especially emotions. You know, they reach for those sugars, those other things. The feel-good factor, because the bacteria now is is proven that when the bacteria for sugars, the survival sugars, get into the gut, it actually sends signals to your brain to tell you you're hungry when you're not because they want feeding. You don't, but they do. So they actually tell you that you're hungry, and you go and get something. um, And you're always hungry if you eat carbohydrates. They digest very quickly. They're easy to break down, especially processed foods. They don't really take long to, for your body to throw acid out and break them down. Where like celery is, you know, one of the hard ones with the fibers in there. So be they're easy processed, so you you do become hungry quicker anyway. And I think. People perhaps reach for those sugar foods because they do feel good. And really, it's the sugar bacterium that feels good and is giving you a break and removes some stress because they're screaming at you for more food a lot of the time. And so I think those there's, there's some emotional things there that they make you feel good. They make you feel you know relaxed. Um, but actually, they're, they're probably doing you more harm than good. I think that the problem with emotions is they do add some heat into the body. And that there is now a correlation, especially very recently. Um, there's some correlations with serious issues emotionally that have affected you during your life and the number of those that you have compared to the number of diseases you have later, and that there's un, un- sort of unresolved trauma can cause problems later on in life with disease and set you up for disease because you're not you have you're not dealing with it. It's still there in the background, you're still it's still, you know adding some emotional heat and taking um some energy to keep where it is if you want not look at it and keep it pushed down because you don't want to look at that bad situation that occurred to you at some time mm-hmm. um, so i th- i think unfortunately it's a bit of a counterintuitive that i, I think you need a more wholesome foods um to clean you out to detox you to kill off some of the sugar bacteria and I think that those that detox helps you deal with emotions and the emotional heat from the liver processing those emotions at the same time. I think you you manage to keep yourself in a much more neutral place, more towards neutral or alkaline, and therefore the the heat there, isn't, the emotions don't affect you as much. often talk about people being hot-headed you know that sort of thing well that's what we mean you know they they get a red face they explode uh, there's that heat coming up if you're on a cold or alkaline diet it's very hard to get that heat brushing up you're more level-headed you know you're more it brings it down you know it's all the language you see this in language all the time describes us and we don't listen to actually the wording behind it that describes the problem hot-headed is too much heat in the body that's it's that simple you know so um i think I think it's. I think the foods that people reach for are not the ones that they should be having. I think it's more alkaline, cold, probably vegetarian vegetables or salads and other things like that. Um, you know, but obviously, you, at the same time, I think it's about curing the the cause, isn't it? I think short term. Anything that gets you by is, is a positive, even if it's not necessarily working for you. If you had some comfort foods for a short, stressful period for three months in your life, while you went through a divorce or you know, a horrible job or whatever it was, and then you got out of it and changed your life, I don't think that's the end of the world. That was a coping mechanism. And you you did whatever you, know, you could to get through it. And that's how we live often. It's just those coping mechanisms can become habits over time. And then we rely on those to help us out and keep us where they are. Well, just like a drug addict you know and that's the problem if you go reaching for the sugar all the time you're just a druggy i'm sorry to break it to people but they're just an addict and you know potentially far worse than any cocaine addict that does a bit of cocaine or whatever as a recreational drug at a weekend they stop they say no i'm not doing any this weekend i'm working or whatever they don't have any With your sugars you do you have them every day you can require them you crave for them you're the worst addicts around to some extent you know unless you're a crack heroin guy you know you're pretty much you're pretty much up there with them that you know definitely need a daily input of something and so you do once you realize actually i'm an addict then you can start realizing that you might change that because you're not happy with that but people are in here understand that sugars especially are an addiction they are you they are you'll say, by the liver as a drug as a total toxic drug nothing of benefit in it at all and that uh, you know you are an ad- addicted person if you cannot say actually i'm not gonna you know stay off these sugars i'm not gonna buy sugary things that's it so and it's hard because obviously is in the stomach demand and the gut demanding it and that you you're, you're also used to it as a habit like, yeah i think um i think more towards our client direct to answer your question in a very long way is it was where you need to head long term but of course dealing with the emotional issue is the key thing isn't it if you remove the issue then there is no problem in the first place and the, like the uh you know the rat fill experiments where they got rats in a cage and offered two drinks one with cocaine and one without they always had the cocaine one because the surroundings if this is my life in a cage i might as well have some cocaine and <laughs> hey you know However, when they put the rats in a really good environment where well, they had everything they need, all the food sources, you know, lots of females, males, lots so you can have sex, wherever you can do whatever you want. Everything was great. You know, it's the ultimate place to be. And they still had the two drinks there. Very rarely would they go for the cocaine. And if they did, it was more of a uh, use it for once and that's it. We'll have a great time tonight. It was really a recreational thing. Really? But actually, so it's the environment that controls you. And I think if you can, you know, if you look at your environment and put yourself in a better place, you'll suddenly find that your foods change. And I think that that's what happens when people invest in a gym membership or something else. You're not just putting that money out in the gym membership. You might then go and buy some gym clothes because you're thinking, I'm going to properly do this and I want to do it properly. So I'll go and buy some that. Well, now you paid that money as well. So when you go to buy food, you start going, actually, I'm going to miss that out because I know that's going to damage my investment here. So you change all sorts of things. When you start doing one change, it does spread out to other areas of your life you do start looking at diet and other things and you you change where you're going to be and i think if you can look at the external items definitely remove those uh, i think our natural state of, of feeling good and eating the right things does come back to us uh, but when we're stressed especially when we're under time constraints of course you go for something that's quick and easy to cook you don't feel like cooking so you get a ready meal you're banging the microwave. That's it, and guess what? Suddenly, you're doing that every day of the week. You know, at the weekend it might change. You might go out, we might see friends. You might have a, you know, a meal somewhere, and you know, it might actually be having, you know, restaurant quality food as opposed to what you're used to having. So, I think there's, you know, against these external factors like stress, like time constraints, other things, it's hard um, and frustrating at times for people to stick to what they should be doing.
0: Yeah. Oh my God. Like I love what you said about the rats. So basically, if their environment is 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 comfortable and they're happy, they they won't go for the cocaine. They'll go for the normal drink and just go for the cocaine on a Saturday, or something. Yeah,
4: I mean, so, you know, generally, if you look for emotional people under counselling that are on drugs, the on drugs with it's coping mechanism. It helps with the pain. They're in a painful place, and alcohol or some other coping mechanism, drugs, food, even food addictions that they help you cope with what you're going through and remove the pain by giving you some other satisfaction or some other way of dealing with it. And obviously drugs may displace your reality slightly to a different place. And so you're not quite living in that whole reality, you're living in this new place. But over time, the effects of these things get less and less, where sometimes you're just taking something to keep yourself normal and stable. You're not getting the benefit you originally got. You know, it's the economic rule of, uh, you know, um declining returns you know it's like when you have a first you have your first drink of alcohol you enjoyed it it was great everything's good you have your second one well you're a little bit drunker now you don't quite get the benefits of the it's the same it's the same drink but you don't you know, after five, you, you, <laughs> it doesn't matter what you're drinking, does it? You yeah. Know, so you, it's, the, it's the rule of diminishing returns where perhaps the more you have, you don't quite get the same effect. And um, that's, that's how it happens with the with drugs, where it becomes a habit. you got to stay on it just to keep yourself level then, and that's the problem. But, again, if you can change the surroundings that someone's in, you know, they may have toxic friends. They may have, you know, if you're around lots of people who use drugs, it's probably that you all use drugs. It's very hard for you to stay strong and not use them all the time. You know, eventually you're going to cumber at some point. If you're around people who smoke, probably you'll smoke, either to fit in with them. but Maybe they say, "Oh, well, you're, you know, why not smoking?" Whatever. And to fit in, you, you put your mask on and you, you fit in with them because you get validation from these people. You don't upset them. Well, you have to hold your own ground, really. If they don't care, you know, about you, then they don't care. You know, if, if really you've got to fit in with somebody to get on with them, they probably don't care anyway about. you. They do certainly don't love you. You know, people who love you deeply. Love you unconditionally you know if someone loves me unconditionally i can go and do something stupid although they might say that was really stupid they still said but I still love you you yeah. know uh, it's it's okay i understand that you needed to do that for whatever yeah. reason you know yeah. but i still care yeah. about you people that sort of uh do whatever see someone change their behavior then say well you're not really with me they never loved you in the first place you know and i think you've got to, people need to get away from people need to find people where they can be authentic to themselves and get validated themselves that on its own removes emotional issues if you've got validation it's very hard to have um sort of emotional problems because you're so secure within yourself you know if i'm if i'm really overweight and i walk past someone and they say how are you doing fatty it's going to really affect me because i think i am overweight but if i'm really thin and someone says fatty it's going to bounce off me because i don't validate the comment you know and likewise if i know know who i am someone can say something to me but i if i'm truly and in touch with who i am inside you know connecting with my inner child on a psychological psychological basis then i'm fine because they can say whatever they want you know and most people say things to you they don't know you well enough to say that you know if someone says oh you know you're this or you're that you know, a good response is, well, you I you know, I could say the same back, but I actually don't know you well enough to say something about you and neither do you about me. So you just you know, it's irrelevant, isn't it? You know? Yeah. And yeah, you know, just try and dismiss the comment. But yeah, I think this I think this is a key thing that you're surrounding items. I mean you look at medicine as a whole, health as a whole, diet as a whole, there are external circumstances that sort of affect the way you eat and the way that you live and those stresses. Diet, of course, is one of them for disease. If we look at disease, diet's a key one. Um, But I think stress, lifestyle, friends and social relationships and emotions are really important to keep an eye on and make sure they're balanced as possible. Otherwise, I think you do, you know, your, your diet is never good then.
0: So there you have it, a roundup of what we had in season six. Don't forget, you can listen to these shows at any time. They're always here. But for our next season, season seven, also under the basics um, umbrella, but this time we're going to be looking at addiction. Now, I've been trying to get people on the show, but it's proven to be a little bit harder this time round. I don't know if it's the word addiction. Um, It could be a bit daunting to people. So I'm going to have a play around with some content and see if I can hook some people in to uh, come and share their story with us, or indeed professionals who can come and share the, the the scientific side of addiction. And, and if you are listening right now thinking you could have a story to share, please do get in touch with me. My email is crazylife8820 at gmail.com. Or you can message me on Facebook or Instagram. But it is my intention in the next season to raise awareness for the people who are coping with addictions or or crutches, or or vices, whatever word it is you wish to call it. Um, And it's basically to show us that it isn't as clear cut as just being an addict or, you know, someone who is obsessed with a certain thing at a certain time, because you've made bad choices. Um, You know, sometimes people get a really bad press uh, when they are using drugs or whatnot, but you don't know what that person's story is behind why they want to escape reality so badly. And um, I know for me, taking drugs was not because I wanted to, you know, look like a smackhead. I, I can c- categorically say that now. Um, but it was about escaping the reality that I was in at that time and just getting out of my own head. And I'd just like to raise the awareness to so that some people have lived some really traumatic lives, and I don't think it's fair the way others judge them because of the choices that they've made. Um, you know, it's a really vicious cycle, uh, trauma and mental health. And I just really feel passionate about getting this side out there and helping other people understand that it's not just so easy as, oh, you made that decision. Yes, they did make that decision, but maybe a really, really dark time of their lives. And that's been the worst decision that they've ever made. And now they're struggling to come off that crutch. I just wanted to be, you know, that person who helps to break down the stigma of um, addicts and then um, I also have wanted to help people understand that there are many ways in which you can get help or help yourself if you're struggling um, nobody said it would be easy but then nothing that we really want in life is I must add though as well for some some people that Addiction isn't just taking drugs and drinking or gambling. No, it can be the things like food, like what we need to survive. People can actually be addicted to food. Like, can you imagine how hard that is for that person? They have to eat to live, but they're addicted to the food, so they overeat. That must be a really hard addiction. And, you know, shopping going shopping, that could be another addiction, credit cards, you know, overspending, and it's a form of mental health. But people always assume that addiction is just drugs and alcohol and drinking. But it it can be all sorts of things. So I really want to raise the awareness to that as well. So a big season coming up. Um, I do hope I can get some amazing speakers to share their story with you and hopefully um, maybe a couple of professionals who would help us dive in, into the subject a little deeper. Um, I'll be back with this brand new season on the 15th of January. And we're going to start with my story around addiction following the podcast's um, natural flow, I suppose, of how I've always done it. I'll start with my story on addiction and how it affected me and yeah what i did to overcome it and i'm still doing to overcome it (laughs) um yeah so that's where i'll be on january the 15th i'll be right here sharing some more gruesome dark and memories from my life (laughs) but until then stay safe stay well and i'll see you very soon You've been listening to the It's a Crazy Life podcast. My name's Sarah and I've been your host. This podcast is dedicated to raising awareness for mental health whilst helping to end the stigma.